You're listening to Payers, Providers, and Patients, Oh My, Kroll and Mooring's healthcare podcast discussing legal and regulatory issues that affect healthcare entities, in-house counsel, executives, and investors. I'm Payal Nanavati. And I'm Joe Records, and we are thrilled today to have a special guest in addition to our very own Xavier Baker, a managed care lawyer in the healthcare group here in D.C. We are joined by Tim Murray, a director and senior consulting actuary who leads Wakely Consulting Group's New York office. Tim, thank you for being here, and let me kick it to you to start us off by setting the stage with the analysis that you and your colleagues prepared for AHIP on the cost of COVID treatment that came out initially in March and then was updated in June. Sure, thank you very much for having me. Obviously the COVID pandemic has been front and center for us as healthcare actuaries. Fairly early on in the pandemic, we were commissioned by AHIP to start the process of studying the cost of COVID-19 treatments for private insurers. The first iteration of our study really just focused on the cost component, the direct cost of serving COVID-afflicted patients, and then subsequent as the pandemic evolved and and as our understanding of the dynamics of deferred care versus direct COVID costs evolved, we updated that analysis in early June to account for the significant offsetting dynamics of deferred care, as well as emerging information around the direct treatment costs across various lines of business. So obviously, if you ask me today what my view is on COVID and how things are shaking out, it may evolve and be a different answer tomorrow, but we're excited to be participating in helping payers navigate the challenging landscape that they face right now. Great. Let's start at the beginning. Can you please walk us through your process as a healthcare actuary to estimate the cost impact of COVID? Yeah. So Typically, as healthcare actuaries, the way we operate is to draw upon historical detailed claims data, and we use that claims data, compile it, organize it into service categories, such as inpatient, outpatient, and other. And for each of those cost categories, we try to define what is a reasonable trend to apply to that historical data to predict what costs may come in the future. As you might not be surprised to know that the pandemic, hopefully just once a century pandemic, throws a wrench into the typical process that pricing actuaries and forecasting actuaries go through in that we didn't have a robust set of cost data to work with. So early on, what many actuaries relied upon were what we were guessing might be similar disease states and similar cost profiles. So the higher level acuity of influenza and pneumonia, parsing historical data for situations where someone might be relying on a ventilator in intensive care versus those where they might not be. And so we've organized data into various levels of acuity service categories using those similar or what we were deeming to be potentially similar diagnoses at that time and combining that with potential incidence levels for how the pandemic might evolve. And we used a very wide range of scenarios in the AHIP study and continue to scenario test a wide range of assumptions. But that's kind of the basic way that we go about it. We try to find the most representative sample of historical data, organize it into service categories, define trend levels and consider future incidents, and use that to arrive at a projected cost 
of serving COVID patients. I just want to jump in here to note what a difficult task this sounds like. It's a moving target at the best of circumstances, but particularly as the clinical data continues to emerge. At the same time that Tim and his colleagues are wrestling with trying to find the best analog with historical information to address this new pandemic, plans were also having to then prepare and submit their forecast premiums, both in the commercial market, including the exchanges, but then also for Medicare Advantage bids over the summer. And so when you look at the timing, where we were, think back, it seems like a lifetime ago in May and June versus when we're now in open enrollment or on the cusp of it, a lot has changed. And yet the work continues. And I know, Tim, you've had a lot of experience helping plans and others, and we don't need to get into specifics of that, try and grapple with this moving target of how do you forecast what the rates are going to be when taking into account the reductions in certain deferred care and the cost trend as it's emerging as we've had different best practices emerge in the treatment of COVID-19 infection. And so kind of looking at that aspect of things, when we're talking about costs, just for the edification of our listeners, back in March, the Families First Coronavirus Release Act and CARES Act made some policy changes to require health insurance providers, you know, health plans, to cover the cost of diagnostic testing without cost sharing. The plans are covering the cost of testing, and many plans undertook to voluntarily waive cost sharing for treatments as well, although not required by the law. Recognizing the unique nature of this crisis, plans stepped up and made available additional care and treatment with lower costs. And I've also been trying additional therapies as providers have made recommendations. So that's one aspect, I suppose, of the direct cost and then the potential impacts on persons with comorbidities and as we learn more about the risk profiles of of individuals with COVID-19. But Tim, you mentioned also the deferred care component of things. And I remember reading recently that at least for inpatient stays, the rate of hospitalization had decreased by around 10.5%. But that's just inpatient stays. And that's, I think, as of this month. But there's a lot more in the healthcare delivery system beside that. Could you tell us a little bit more about the deferred care components and how that affects rate setting and the forecast you perform? Yes, Xavier. We have been very closely monitoring the emerging utilization studies. They're obviously published by a variety of bodies, and we study the data of our health plan clients as well. We look at the deferral of care Typically at the service category level, you pointed out a data point on inpatient costs, obviously outpatient costs, emergency room utilization, a variety of other PCP and specialist buckets, telehealth increases. We look at the service categories kind of component by component. And when we are developing a forecast or when we're putting forth a rate analysis or rate filing, we are deriving assumptions for where we think that cost deferral pattern will go in the future if it continues. And what I've found in my experience so far is that the national studies, the headlines that you hear around cost deferral are generally consistent across the country, but there are definitely some instances where we see geographic variation where there might not be as much of a level of deferral as what you read about nationally. 
And I think that is driven in part by the level and rigor of lockdowns varying quite a bit, the duration of lockdowns varying across the country, and just the appetite for social distancing and mask wearing. Those types of things have had a material influence on a varying experience level that we've seen depending upon the geography of the health plan that we're serving. And to the kind of general point on rate setting and the challenges, we can go through all of these scenario tests to evaluate what widely ranging varies of levels of incidence may drive in terms of both direct cost and cost deferrals. But when it comes down to it, we need to put forth a rate, whether it be commercial rate filing or whether it be a Medicare Advantage bid, a rate needs to be put forth that reflects the best estimate of where we think things will shake out. And I can say that depending upon the organization that we're dealing with, depending upon the geography and the experience with the pandemic so far, and I think we've seen this in some of the national studies that have been put forth on the variation in rate changes going from 2020 to 2021, we see an extraordinarily wide range of impacts reflected even accounting for the same dynamic of COVID direct costs, the tug of war between direct costs and cost deferrals. Tim, am I right to assume that in addition to merely delaying a cost, that we have a potential for actually increased costs so that basically what we would see is if a treatment had occurred in or an intervention or, or anything had occurred in 2020, the cost would have been X. But because it is delayed, the condition has been exacerbated, and therefore the cost is X plus one. Is that a correct assumption, or at least an assumption that is reasonable going forward? So it's certainly an assumption that has been reflected in some rate filings. And I think it follows with common sense that particularly around chronic condition management, if you continually defer care, or if you continually defer screenings, for chronic conditions or severe conditions, you may be faced with a rebound in care coming at a later date and or an increase in severity of that care acuity once it does come around. So absolutely that is a concern for health plans and for society, for for healthcare ecosystem in general. I will say that in the data that I've seen so far, haven't quite seen that manifest just yet. But certainly the concern over both the volume of care rebound as well as the acuity of care rebound is prominent in discussions. I haven't quite seen it play out so far in the data at this stage. So how does it impact your analysis that payers, providers, and patients are looking to telehealth to provide some of the care that would have otherwise occurred in person? Yeah, so certainly we've seen a very substantial increase in telehealth utilization and perhaps even among seniors, a surprising level of adoption of telehealth services, healthcare systems and payers shifting fairly nimbly over to telehealth platforms and making sure that folks are seen. That is one of the many offsetting costs that we need to contemplate as we try to measure the emerging impact and future impact of this pandemic. And certainly we've seen many instances, and I'd say maybe general prevalence of a lot of those services being paid at parity with in-person events, at least for a temporary period. 
So as we've monitored the very substantial deflation of cost related to deferral of care, we also have an offsetting uh, fairly material increase in cost coming through telehealth services. And as we've seen in the publicly traded payers reporting so far for Q2 and Q3, the net is a fairly substantial drop in utilization. So plans have to set rates for 2021, notwithstanding the unusually great uncertainty about what next year will look like in terms of utilization. What have we seen so far for the 2021 rates? Are they higher than 2020? Are they lower? What we've seen across the market is, and in my personal experience in serving health plans, is at least at the time when rates were set, for the most part, that happens in early to late spring of 2020 for 2021. Plans were obviously experiencing a fairly noteworthy level of deferral at that point, and so had some insight into this tug of war, how it was emerging so far between direct COVID costs and cost deferrals. But I think most organizations expected some level of rebound to flow through either the latter part of 2020 or into 2021. So you may see more organizations having reflected, depending upon the timing of when the rates were filed, they may skew a little bit towards assuming that COVID would drive an increase in cost for 2021, just based on care rebounding and the acuity topic that we've already discussed a bit. So I would say from a neutral to modest increase in net cost might have been the consensus view at the time of rate setting. I think over time, as the significance of the care deferral has manifested over Q2 and Q3, I think that mindset may shift a little bit towards thinking the projected cost would be neutral to even a modest reduction in utilization for 2021. But as we see in the published rates on the commercial side, just a very wide range of impacts and even a wide range of COVID-specific impacts that are sometimes delineated in the rate filings themselves. And is this something that varies market to market? I would think that there's a possibility that we might see rate changes in the commercial market that are a little different from what we would see in, for example, Medicare markets. Yep, absolutely. And there's some reasons why, some kind of structural reasons why. I'll give you one example as to why in the Medicare market it may shift a little bit towards the neutral to down projection. And that is that in the Medicare market, the CMS came out and clarified that if a vaccine were to be released and issued in 2021, and that represented a substantial cost to the program, that would be covered under Medicare fee-for-service and not under Medicare Advantage. And we would expect that if a vaccine is out, it would constitute what CMS defines as a significant cost. And so, whereas there might be uncertainty in other markets with respect to vaccine and coverage and testing, the fact that that was taken off the table effectively for Medicare for 2021, that may skew Medicare organizations. And we see that to some degree in the premium rates that have been published already may have skewed them more towards a less conservative stance because one key cost driver was taken off the table effectively for 2021. And jumping back to the commercial side of the house, particularly the exchanges, 
I mean, Tim, the point you made is exactly right in terms of the variability. And, and Joe, to your point, there is a geographic consideration there. I remember earlier in the summer seeing a study of 11 markets, including BC, showing a range of between a 12% reduction in rates for 2021 to around a 31% increase, depending on where geographically the exchange market was and some of the different assumptions that Tim's walked us through. I think on average, though, for the benchmark plans, the second cheapest silver plan for which the tax credit is keyed, I think premiums on average are down around 2% year over year for that type of product. And then overall, I think since 2018, and this is notwithstanding COVID, exchange premiums have dropped by around 8%. If part of that might be due to the fact that as a result of many folks potentially losing employer-sponsored coverage because of the economic distress caused by the public health emergency, when one loses employer-sponsored coverage, you qualify for a special enrollment period and can join the exchanges. So there may be a fairly stable market for the exchanges and a potentially larger risk pool for the exchanges that might be... Now, I'm not an actuary, but and so Tim can disabuse me if I'm missing something here. But I think those may also be contributing factors to why the premiums have been, on average, at least nationally, lower year over year, notwithstanding the impact of COVID-19. Yeah, I think definitely fair points on contributions to the general rating environment that we observe. Obviously, we've seen the ACA market continue to stabilize over time in terms of the margin profile. And you bring up a point on the shifting of folks from employer coverage to the ACA market. We also may see and have seen already uh, fairly sizable shifts into the Medicaid market as well. And anytime you see these sort of massive shifts in population from one line of business to another, that oftentimes creates a disruption in the rating profile of that market. So simple example is when Medicaid expansion came about as part of the ACA, it was a bit of a challenge for states to get their arms around the morbidity profile of that expansion population. And it's no different from what we're expecting to see here with the COVID disruption as folks shift from one market to another. It creates, in some cases, wreaks havoc on the expected morbidity profile reflected in rating versus that which is actually enrolled. And that can create opportunity and challenges in terms of the margin profile in these lines of business. And of course, we can't talk about the impact of COVID on rates without talking about the impact of COVID on medical loss ratios. Xavier, can I ask you to give us a little bit of a description of what we're looking at in terms of how the things that are affecting rates are also affecting MLRs that apply to plans and issuers? Happy to. So before I jump into the COVID-19 specific MLR considerations, I will indulge in a shameless plug for our prior episodes on MLR issues on this podcast. Of course, I know our listeners have already heard it, but they may want to have a refresher. So shout out to the prior podcast episodes on MLR. Now, thinking about the COVID-19 issues, I think when Tim was reviewing some of the deferred costs of care and, and telehealth in response to your question, one of the things that I think was lurking in the background was the provider impact. 
As we know, many providers have struggled, whether it's facilities or professional providers, when care was deferred. And likewise, Tim already mentioned that Q2, Q3 financial results for payers showed that they were sitting in a pretty envious financial position. And so what many payers have done to avoid uh, potential MLR consequences or to mitigate that risk, and also to ensure that their enrollees have access to care, they've engaged in a number of different processes that are serving both of those objectives, mitigating MLR risk, but also ensuring the healthcare delivery system remains viable. And what are some examples of those activities that plans have engaged in in order to mitigate their MLR risk? So some plans made advanced payments to providers. Typically, these are fee-for-service providers who, when care was deferred, were put in greater financial distress. And so plans had flexibilities, particularly under state law, to make advanced payments either with a reconciliation or to make quality improvement activity-type payments to improve population health management or improve encounter data, made investments with their network providers. When many providers and hospitals were struggling, and I believe that some of those advanced payments by the plans have helped, and that's been one way to help alleviate the pressure financially on those providers, while also helping the MLR, because again, the simplified view of MLR is how many cents of every dollar of premium revenue is attributable to either claims cost or quality improvement activities that help bend the cost curve or improve outcomes. Again, this is very simplified, but I think in a nutshell, that's the view. And so plants have a number of arrows in their quiver. One, again, we talked about was the provider payment angle. Another was flexibility that CMS afforded under the public health emergency, both for federal programs, Medicaid, managed care with the states, as well as Medicare Advantage and Part D, to allow mid-year benefit changes. Typically, when you can't do that in NA or Part D, but because of the public health emergency, plans were given the opportunity and CMS would exercise enforcement discretion to provide additional benefits, whether they're supplemental benefits, such as meal delivery services, and otherwise, to think about folks who have to maintain social distance or have frailties to provide additional services to them that helps, one, prevent them from potentially contracting COVID-19, but two, also has the benefit of reducing potential MLR liability. Tim, have you seen other activities by plans that are designed to mitigate potential MLR exposure and also respond to the public health emergency? Yeah, I would say that the topic of addressing public health emergency concerns for providers and for beneficiaries while mitigating the minimum MLR exposure risk that a health plan faces, that's probably what's occupying the majority of my time as we approach the end of calendar year 2020. And I want to back up a little bit. And while I think the publicly traded payers have reported openly that generally there's been a depression of MLR so far for 2020 related to the public health emergency, it is important to note that depending upon the level of value-based care, the, depending upon the prevalence of capitated arrangements that may exist in a particular market or contract, there may be instances where 
uh, payer in a particular market is shifting the risk downstream to an IPA group, paying, say, 85% of premium to that group, and the IPA is taking on risk, in which case there is no MLR risk or consequence. And the provider, sort of by definition, is going to be financially okay through the pandemic, and they'll even reap the upside of deferred care from a financial perspective. Whereas many plans, as we've discussed, are so far experiencing a depression of medical loss ratio so far for 2020. And given the unprecedented flexibility that has been in place for plans and will continue to be in place at least for another few months, we've seen plans increase benefits, OTC allowances. We've seen instances of premiums being waived, cost sharing being waived voluntarily, even for services not related to COVID. We've seen quality improvement activities and member outreach activities, such as plans handing out masks and sanitizer, mobile pharmacy outreach programs, all sorts of programs really focused on serving members better while simultaneously reflecting that a significant chunk, either 80 or 85% of the incoming healthcare dollar needs to be deployed towards these endeavors. So we're talking a lot about the costs that plans and issuers are incurring, but we haven't really touched on the other side of the MLR equation, the revenue side. With all of the deferred care that has not happened so far in 2020, the Medicare Advantage market is a pronounced example here of, of where there could be a very significant influence on revenue for 2021. The deferred care that's not happening in 2020 is where diagnoses are documented that ultimately drive revenue for 2021 in the Medicare Advantage world. So a lot of these outreach efforts that we're talking about, benefit adaptations, provider payments, in some cases it could be reaching out to a member via telehealth or an in-home visit, they simultaneously present the opportunity to the health plan of caring for the members while also ensuring that their diagnoses are captured for 2020, which in turn help to protect revenue in 2021. So kind of have this multidimensional strategic effort that's happening now in the latter part of 2020, where plans are laser focused on making sure they're looking after their members by increasing benefits or waiving premiums, looking after their provider networks to make sure they're financially sound so that they continue into the post-pandemic era and there is a network to go to, make sure that they're accurately coding diagnoses in 2020 to ensure that their revenue matches expectations for 2021. And some of this is happening all during the sales cycle. So folks that are seeing their health plans serve them better at a time of crisis may help to improve retention in health plans as well. So lots going on in the MLR world and a lot of the strategic variables to navigate and consider for health plans. And you raised a couple of points that I want to underscore, Tim, that I really appreciate. When you're talking about capturing the coding information, I mean, we're talking risk adjustment, right? We want to make sure that the risk adjustment data is robust to protect that 2021 revenue. And also, I recall that CMS provided some flexibilities around certain star ratings, given some of the reporting requirements around some but not others. And so that's another potential impact on revenue. 
But then before you talked about MA, you mentioned capitated providers. And one of the things we've seen out there is some states are exploring the possibility of creating a benchmark or a forecast payment model where fee-for-service providers would be entitled to a certain amount of reimbursement in the commercial market, specifically to avoid some of the financial distress that occurred here. And it's interesting because capitation, to your point, already mitigates that exposure. But not all states are as friendly to a capitated model as, say, California or others. And so there are interesting regulatory developments that we can look forward to that are going to potentially impact or shift the payer-provider reimbursement models that we've come to know and love over the years. Agree. So what are some risk mitigation measures that are available for plans given the impacts of COVID? Now, we have seen, as you look to state programs, and even at the national level, we've seen discussion of the potential for risk mitigation programs to be implemented and or adapted to account for plans that might have a disproportionate experience with COVID. So whenever we talk about risk mitigation measures in the actuarial world, there's kind of three buckets called the famous three R's of the ACA. They wear many hats depending upon the market that you're looking at, but risk adjustment would be one area. So if COVID costs or COVID diagnoses may ultimately find their way into risk adjustment models that are promulgated by CMS and other state-based organizations. So if a member has a COVID diagnosis, it may trigger incremental payments. Certainly, we've seen temporary payments come through increase to inpatient fee schedules so far implemented by CMS. We've seen discussion of reinsurance programs where the really high acuity cases above what we would call an attachment point, call it 100000 200000 250000 costs above a set level would be borne by a shared pool of health plans in the state or market or country. We've also seen discussion of, of risk corridor programs and some draft legislation that's been put forth to mitigate the high costs for a plan that might be dealing with a disproportionate share of COVID cases. So I haven't seen anything necessarily flow through the industry or flow through expansive legislation at this point, but those are the topics and measures that are typically in discussion with respect to COVID. I think as we get more data around the potential COVID-19 long haulers or some of the additional clinical impact of having had COVID-19, risk adjustment may become a more attractive vehicle. There's certainly a bunch of interesting opportunities here to help the healthcare delivery system respond to an unprecedented crisis and really appreciate your thoughts and wisdom, both in terms of how plans have been trying to grapple with this, but also in terms of insights around how industry generally has to face these sorts of questions. Well, thank you both for being here. This has all been really helpful to understand health plan rating in the COVID environment. As something of a postscript to this episode, while we have you both here, if you'll indulge me, I have one final bonus question that is just tangentially related to the end of our conversation today. In recent litigation on risk corridor payments to issuers, which we will be discussing in a future episode, the receipt of judgments against the United States may have a potential impact on medical loss ratios for plans and issuers, and I would love to hear your thoughts on those MLR impacts. Sure. Wakely recently put forth an analysis that summarized an estimated impact 
of the risk corridor case in particular, combined with the draft guidance that CMS put forth on how the risk corridor recovery payments would flow through accounting in the MLR filings. And the key takeaway there is that the bulk of the funds received by plans and organizations would be able to be retained by those plans and not flow through to MLR rebate or incremental MLR rebates. We've had quite a bit of discussion in the actuarial community on this topic, grappling with how would CMS deal with the substantial payments coming through the risk corridor recoveries and flowing down through the MLR calculations. And my consistent stance from the get-go was that because the MLR filings are done on an incurral basis, on a benefit year basis, typically we're taking even payments and recoveries that happen years later and attributing them back to the year in which they were earned or incurred. And so I think it was feared by the industry that the payments coming through the risk corridor recoveries would be accounted for as 2020 or 2021 revenue. And fortunately for the plans, the CMS draft guidance does not seem to be going down that path, which feels like a fair place for it to land, mainly because as the audience is probably well aware, the financial performance and profile of the ACA market in 2014 to 2016 is very different from the financial performance and profile as it is today. And so it would be a bit perverse to have a significant chunk of funds that are associated with 2014 or 2015 flowing through and treated as 2020 or 2021 revenue and creating very substantial financial consequences in the form of incremental MLR rebates, particularly when plans have not established rates that we're assuming that these funds would be coming. So from an actuarial perspective, anytime you're taking the funds that are received and allocating them back to the year that they were originally associated with, from a purist perspective, that feels like a good and fair resolution to this lengthy case and the unknown of how it would be adjudicated. So I'll turn it to Xavier for his thoughts. Thanks, Tim. No, I think all of that makes sense, at least as much sense as anything actuarial does to a non-actuary. So thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Okay, great. Thank you both again. Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My is a podcast brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash healthcare podcast. Mm-hmm.